You work hard to provide for your family. Maybe you even have two jobs. But still, it's a struggle to put food on the table, keep the lights on, and now the car needs brakes. If you just had a few more dollars till payday. Well, folks in those dire financial straits often turn to what they think is their only option, the dreaded payday loan, and then they end up paying more in interest than they borrowed. Kingdom Advisors President Rob West has some alternatives. Then he takes your calls at 800-525-7000. 800-525-7000. I'm Steve Moore. With your permission, let's get Money Wise. Rob, we hear the horror stories about payday loan operations charging yes. four, five hundred percent interest. Mm. Why would anyone take out a payday loan? Well, two reasons, I'm afraid, and they work together to make life miserable for these unfortunate individuals. First, they're just simply desperate for cash. Mm. These are working people who run out of money before they can pay the electric bill because the kids needed new shoes to start school. They've maxed out their credit card, or maybe they can't get one because of a poor credit history, so they're in trouble. A second, as you mentioned, they don't realize there may be other options. And once they take out a payday loan with astronomically high interest, as you point out, it becomes a vicious cycle of running short each month and payday borrowing. Soon they're paying so much in interest, they fall further behind on everything else. And this isn't just a few people. One study showed that 12 million Americans take out payday loans each year, and they pay $9 billion in interest to these opportunistic companies. Yeah, you, you mentioned, you used the term payday borrowing. I presume that means borrowing from another source to pay off your payday loan? Uh, Yeah, it's just, again, that vicious cycle that begins to circle. All right, so what are the alternatives? Anything would be better than paying 500 or 600% interest. Well, you'd think so, but this first one is still a terrible idea. A U.S. bank now has something they call simple loan that still exploits desperate people, just not so much, I guess. It allows cash-strapped individuals to borrow in $100 increments up to $1,000. There are no late or prepayment penalties, so I appreciate that, but borrowers have to pay back the money in three monthly installments. Uh, Okay, but uh, what's the interest rate? In a word, horrible, even though it's a fraction of payday loan interest. Here's how it works. Let's say you borrow $100. You then have to pay that back in three monthly installments with a $12 fee for each installment. That $12 fee is per each $100 borrowed. So if you borrowed $200, Mm -hmm. it would be $24 three times that you'd pay back. When you do the math, that comes out to about a 70% annual interest rate. Now, that's better than 600% but still usury in my book. Oh, yeah, maybe a little bit more palatable, but still not a great thing. So is there a better alternative? There is. You may be able to get a better interest rate at a credit union. Uh, Credit unions are member-owned, not-for-profit organizations that often can give you a better rate than your bank. But you have to be a member. If you don't belong to one, you can go online and find a credit union near you at a smarter choice. 
org. And here's one more alternative to payday loans. If your cash shortage is a one-time thing, or at least pretty unusual, consider asking your employer for an advance. That might be embarrassing, but it's far better than getting caught in a payday loan trap that you might never escape. Uh, some employers like Walmart now allow their workers to get access to the pay they've earned in real time instead of having to wait until the next payday. Okay, uh, but still the credit union, the salary advance, uh, borrowing from mom, uh, you know, good ideas, but aren't we just treating a symptom here? really? Absolutely. These are all temporary measures to help financially struggling people regain control of their finances, a last resort. But you can't do that without getting on a budget. Spending less than you earn is the foundation for financial success over time. We can help you do that. Just go to moneywise.org to find helpful tools. And here's the key, a volunteer MoneyWise coach to work with you to set up a budget. They'll help you track your expenses. They'll help you get Get on that spending plan. If you want to use a smartphone app or a paper envelope system, they'll help you do any of it. Mm. Walk with you for up to 12 weeks, and there's no cost. Yeah, well, I, see, I was going to throw that in. What about the, the costs of, of doing this? You're telling me there are money-wise coaches all across the country. They'll work with you up to 12 weeks, and they don't charge a penny. And they know Christ as their Savior, and they fold all of this financial wisdom, obviously, into biblical wisdom, which is where it all starts for us. Sounds too good to be true, but it's correct. <laughs> this is Money Wise Weekend. We're taking your calls at 800 525 7000. God cares a great deal more about our money than most of us imagine. In fact, Jesus says more about our use of money and possessions than about anything else, including both heaven and hell. In Managing God's Money, author Randy Alcorn breaks it all down in a simple, easy-to-follow format that makes it the perfect reference tool if you're interested in gaining a solid biblical understanding of money, possessions, and eternity. Managing God's Money is available when you click the Store button at moneywise.org. Many people are experiencing financial challenges, such as credit card debt, downsizing, dead-end jobs, and depleted savings. In fact, more than half of all divorces are the result of financial pressures at home. But there's hope. In Your Money Counts, biblical financial expert Howard Dayton shows that the Bible is a veritable blueprint for managing your finances, and you'll discover the profound impact it has on your relationship with God. Your Money Counts is available when you click the store button at moneywise.org. If you'd like to talk with our host, Rob West, our number to call is 800-525-7000. Stephen is in Worcester, Ohio, listening to WCRF. And uh, you guys want to buy a house sometime soon, huh, Steve? Yeah. um, My wife and I, we've been on a strict budget uh, probably for the past almost going on two years now. We're planning on being, uh, we got about $7,000 of debt left to go. We're planning on getting paid off by the end of this year. And, um, we're kind of looking at, you know, hopefully in the spring or the fall looking to buy a house. Uh, we were renting up until two weeks ago, but unfortunately the, the landlord had to get into move back in. We knew them, but my in-laws were gracious enough to let us stay and possibly stay over the winter and we'll help them out as well uh, while we're staying. But all that, I guess to say we were, how soon does being debt, start to negatively impact your credit score as far as then when we're going to start looking to get a loan for a home. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're you're concerned, Stephen, that perhaps because you no longer owe any debt or you don't have any debt, so therefore you're not making a payment, and therefore the creditor is not reporting you as being an on-time payer because the balance is zero. That may hurt your credit score, and that would impact you when you go to buy a home. Am I understanding the question? Yeah, as far as interest rates and things like that, yeah. and yeah. being like. I just don't quite know how all that works. Sure. And do you have any other accounts that are being that would continue to be reported? Do you have a car loan? Do you uh, anything like that? No, no car loans. No, okay. uh, we own all our cars. Uh, yeah. We just have we have um, some student loan debt, and then we have unfortunately at, at the time I took some credit cards with, uh, and kind of consolidated them into a, a personal loan. So between the personal loan and the student loans, we have a little over seven thousand dollars of debt left. Okay, started out with about twenty four thousand dollars two years ago. And- okay, very good. Well, I, I think the bottom line is you have great scores right now uh, at eight fifteen and seven sixty five. So uh, the fact that you would pay off these accounts, uh, you know, over time, if you have fewer accounts being reported, it may slightly impact you. Uh, but I don't think you're going to have any problem because you've demonstrated you uh, for the accounts you've had, you've demonstrated that you are a very good credit risk in the sense that you've paid as agreed. Uh, you will still likely have your student loan continue to be reported. Uh, Once you have a home mortgage, that will obviously be reported. So the fact that uh, you've paid off these accounts in full and have zero balances uh, is not going to really impact you. Uh, And again, 815 and 765 is phenomenal. The the minimum score um, for Fannie and Freddie is 620. Uh, Once you get over 700 or 720, you're really then looking at all the top tier lenders and up at 765 and 815, you're really in good shape. So I wouldn't worry about that one bit. I'd stay right on your track to pay off that debt. Uh, I think your credit scores will be just fine and keep uh, following biblical principles as you've been doing. Uh, Rob, once someone is is totally out of debt, meaning uh, credit card debt, student loans, things like that, uh, does anyone track your regular payments to utilities and things like that? Does that help or not help your score? No, typically you would only see that show up if you stopped paying. <laughs> so if you got <laughs> severely delinquent or you had a checking account that was in a deficit balance overdrawn for a period of time, those kinds of things would often show up on a credit report. But unfortunately, they're of no benefit while you're in good standing, which uh, is not helpful. Okay. You mentioned Freddie and and, and Fanny, we should, I hear you talk about them a lot. We should have them on the broadcast sometime, don't you think? Uh, we'll have one of our producers contact. Yeah, that, that's a different Fanny and Freddie. <laughs> oh, different. Oh, okay. All right. These are gover- government agencies. <laughs> oh, well, we don't want them in that case. All right. 1-800-525-7000. I just know I'm going to get audited this year. I just know it's going to happen. Uh, Jim's in Indiana. What's your question, Jim? Hey, good, happy Friday to you both. You guys yeah, thanks, buddy. Um, you, have, you have great chemistry, to working together, great advice for everyone, and I've grown a lot. Oh, thank you, Jim. I want to ask about church debt. I understand that church debt and personal debt is regulated by the same rules and concepts that the Bible tells us. Yeah. But my wife and I, about five or six years ago, joined a small church when we moved into a new community. And it was being held in a rental facility, and they wanted to get away from renting and get their own piece of land and property, 
we didn't know anybody, any of the players, but apparently they went around the congregation as it was and got promissory notes from, oh, 10 or 12 different people. And together, the bank allowed for about a $300,000 loan to buy land and build a building. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, I never gave it some a thought about how that was being paid back. I, my wife and I were ignorant in that, I guess. But my question is, we researched that church on a statement of faith basis only. We read their statement of faith, and it was fine with us, and we willingly joined. Now, my question to you is, do you think a person that's doing church shopping should also look for a financial report from a church that would show mission support, because that's where this is lacking in this church here. No mission support. It's all being paid to the principal. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a good question, Jim. And I think, you know, just from a high level, what I would say is, uh, you know, churches follow the same principles that individuals do with regard to uh, finances, or they should. And that means that uh, we need to really understand the counsel of Scripture as it relates to managing money. uh, And we should apply those principles. But ultimately, a lot of this is left to personal conviction. Uh, And I think as we come under the leadership of the local church, ultimately it's up to the pastor and the church leadership to make those decisions on behalf of the church. Clearly, if there was a direct violation of something in Scripture, that would be problematic. But to the extent the church chooses to take on debt or, uh, you know, depending on where the church is at financially and the size of the church, the number of people that are there, the amount of debt that is in place, whether it was uh, taken on by the existing pastor or the the pastor inherited that debt when uh, perhaps he moved to that church. Uh, There's a a number of factors there. And so I think it would be reasonable to say, I want to sit down uh, with somebody from the church leadership and understand uh, uh, the health of the church financially and and understand the budget. And and hopefully the church has a process to make that available to the congregation. So there's uh, full transparency. And there's uh, obviously in a Bible-believing church, a, a priority given to not only meeting the needs of those in the body and in the local community, but to uh, missions as well. But whether that would be an automatic disqualifier for me if a church had debt or if a church, uh, you know, was not giving significant amounts uh, to missions, I wouldn't say that would be a disqualifier uh, necessarily. I think, again, I would want to understand what the leadership has to say with regard to how the funds are being managed and then take that into consideration with a number of other things as I'm making a decision uh, to, you know, whether or not to make that my church home. So, uh, you know, I, hopefully that's helpful. And, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with you asking some questions and then, um, you know, perhaps making a decision at that point. Jim, we appreciate your call. Very interesting uh, call and question. You know, on this whole topic of uh, a church taking on debt to build, well, that's a sticky one. And that's, uh, you know, a question that every church needs to address and pray about as a membership. But I'd like to recommend a book called The Debt-Free Church by our friends Jim Burgess and Jeff Berg. I don't think it's in print any longer, but you can find it online. Again, it's called The Debt-Free Church by Jim Burgess and Jeff Berg. More Money Wise Weekend. we return. Do you know if you have enough, enough money, enough house? Do you know how much is enough? 
If not, Ron Blue can help with his book, Master Your Money, a step-by-step plan for experiencing financial contentment. Learn how to save, invest, and give wisely, how to create a long-term financial plan, and how to get out of debt. You'll find it all in Master Your Money by Ron Blue. Available when you click the store button at moneywise.org. Investing is more than just returns. It's an expression of who you are and what you value. Does the way you invest your money reflect your identity as a Christian? At Eventide, we design investments for performance and a better world, so you can invest with a confidence to reach your financial goals while remaining true to your Christian values and commitments. We call this investing that makes the world rejoice. More is available at investeventide.com. That's investeventide.com. Nice to have you listening today. This is MoneyWise Weekend with Rob West. I'm Steve Moore, and we do our best here to remember that God owns it all. It really does change our perspective on how we spend our money, how we invest our money, how generous we are or aren't. Uh, but we are merely managers, or as the Bible puts it, stewards of what God provides. Chicago, Illinois, WMBI, of course. And Jackie, what's in your mind? Hi, I listen to Hi. you guys all the time, and I love your show. Oh, Thanks. thank you, Jackie. Very sweet. Um, my question is about term um, insurance, because I have term insurance, and my mom keeps telling me that whole insurance is better. And I'm not sure which one, because when I listen to you guys, you always say that term, well, term, you, you are good to go argument for term, but then for whole, it's like I'm not sure of which one I should do, because right now I've had term for about, I want to say about eight years now. And it's a big amount. Well, it's like 450000 or something, and I only pay. It's for me and my husband. And we pay about, I think, $60 a month. So my mom was telling me that I should get term instead. And I just want to know, like, literally, what is the difference and which one is better? Or is yeah. there such thing as better, or are they just too different? Uh, they are different. You will hear us talk more about term because that's our preference for most people. Does that mean there's never a place for whole life insurance? No, I wouldn't go that far. Others would say that. Uh, I would not. I think there are certain situations where a whole life policy would make sense. But for the average person, I like term insurance, and here's why. And, and let me help you with the difference. Basically, term insurance is what we call pure insurance. You are paying for only the cost of the mortality expense to give you a death benefit. What in the world? does that mean? Well, what that means is uh, the actuarial rate. So there's people that their job is to determine what is the risk of insuring your life for a period of time based on your age and your current health. And they turn that uh, calculation into a cost, an amount that you have to pay for the cost of insurance uh, for you for the insurance company to, to offer that death benefit to you. And with a term policy, you're only paying for the amount of the cost of them insuring you. With a whole life policy, it's the cost of the insurance, the death benefit, plus uh, a savings vehicle or a savings account. And there are some tax advantages to it. But the reason we typically would encourage you not to go that route is because I would rather you buy the amount of coverage you need so you determine how much insurance would you need if something happened to you or if something happened to your husband to provide enough in the way of a benefit, a death benefit, so that that money could be invested and any income that was lost 
could be replenished. Now, it's important, though, that if you go the way of term insurance, and by the way, because it's less expensive, what we find is most people can be properly insured. Oftentimes with whole life insurance, they don't buy enough insurance because they can't afford it. So you get as much insurance as you need, and then it's really important that you're saving outside of that in a company-sponsored 401k, in a Roth IRA, in things that are going to allow you on a tax-advantaged basis to grow your wealth over time. So when you get to retirement, you've got some assets to rely on that are going to provide the income. And guess what? When you get to that point, you don't need insurance anymore. The term policy lapses, you drop it, and you don't need a death benefit because you're what's called self-insured at that point. So I think that's the big idea there is that you understand the difference between the two. And if you go the term route, make sure you're properly covered and then make sure you're saving outside of the insurance policy so that you've got enough assets to take care of you later in life when you're not working or you redirect your time and energy to perhaps full-time service to the Lord. Does that make sense though, Jackie? Yes, sounds good. I'll get it from that point that you just said. Thank you. Okay. You're very welcome. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Jackie. Let's move along to Kingsport, Tennessee, WHCB. Hey, Val, what's on your mind? Hey, I could be retired, but I'm still working full-time plus. And I'm just trying to look forward to enough for retirement, et cetera. I have zero debts. I have a portfolio, and I took your advice, and I lowered the stocks and increased the bonds, et cetera, a couple years ago. My question is, I heard a man about my age talking about a backdoor rollover. And, you know, in a couple of years, maybe two, I'll be having to take some of that money out. They force you to when you reach a certain age. So yeah. talk to me about the backdoor rollover and what perks I should advise, be advised. Sure. Yeah. What you probably heard us talking about there, Val, is uh, what's called a backdoor Roth IRA. And essentially what happens is there are income limits uh, that allow you, or when you get beyond those limits, you're no longer able to contribute uh, to a Roth IRA. In fact, you can't contribute on a deductible basis to a traditional IRA when you go over those income limits. What a backdoor Roth allows you to do is you can make a contribution, a non-deductible contribution to a traditional IRA, even though you're over that cap. And then the IRS allows you to convert that non-deductible IRA contribution, the amount that's in the traditional IRA, to a Roth. And so you're, in a sense, through the back door, getting around the uh, income cap that exists uh, with the, the Roth IRA contribution. The benefit there is once it's in the Roth, you have two things going on. One is you have tax-free growth. And so if you continue to work, you don't need that money. That money can continue to grow even during that re- those retirement years. Secondly, there is no required minimum distribution. And so uh, when you reach 70 and a half, you don't have to take the money out. You can just leave it right there in the Roth IRA and let it continue to grow. And so that's why uh, that's where you should, uh, if that's your situation, take a look at that, but always discuss it with your tax preparer because when it comes to uh, making contributions and retirement accounts, we certainly want to stay within the guidelines so you don't have any penalties or uh, fees that you have to pay by doing something incorrectly. Mm. Val, I hope that helps you. We're going to have to run along here, but thank you very much. Hope you have a great weekend. Rob West, hope you and your family have a great weekend as well, sir. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Hey, want to read a good book on money? Then let me suggest the original good book, The Bible. 
There are over 2,300 verses in God's Word that reference money and possessions, so you know that the subject is important to God and therefore should be vital to us. Our partners at the American Bible Society agree, and that's why they've produced the Financial Stewardship Bible. You'll find God's Word addressing topics like buying, selling, saving, investing, generosity, provision, teaching children about money, work, career, honesty, attitude, and believe it or not, a whole lot more. This 1,300-page Bible includes a special study section that can be used in a group discussion and a 40-day devotional written by Howard Dayton for personal use. So if you'd like to apply God's Word and wisdom to your financial life, I urge you today to begin with the Financial Stewardship Bible, and you can see and order a copy when you visit us online at moneywise.org. That's moneywise.org. You'll find all of our resources when you scroll to the bottom of our homepage, moneywise.org. Well, that's it for today. We're out of time. For Rob West, I'm Steve Moore. Thanks so much for listening. We're hoping you'll come back and join us again next time. Mm -hmm.